Hello world and welcome to the Humble and Honest Podcast. On today's episode, I'll be joined by Ashley Abercrombie. But before I talk about that, let me tell you a little bit about the people that helped me do this, Ambo TV. Ambo TV brings inspirational live sermons from the most captivating next generation Christian pastors, along with in-studio discussion to a broad multi-platform audience. I love being a part of the Ambo TV team. Definitely check out AmboTV.com to see all that they have to offer. I promise you won't regret it. On today's episode, we are joined by Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley Abercrombie and her husband are pastors in New York City. And also, she is the author of the book, Rise of the Truth Teller. Listen, guys, you're going to tell during this interview with her that I'm a big fan of this book and a big fan of her and her ministry. And I hope you also see why I am all of those things. We talk in this time about things from social media to also things big in the church as far as racial representation. This is a really big, important conversation, one that I hope you guys have an open mind to. Without further ado, let's check it out together. Ashley Abercrombie. I started reading your book, Rise of the Truth Teller, and you start from the jump. You probably have one of the best book intros I've read this year. Because normally when I read Christian books from men or women, like they start off with something interesting, but you kind of started it off almost like a movie where it's like, oh, Mm. what is happening here? (laughs) You follow along with it. And then eventually, you know, you hear so much of what you've learned and and the truths that you speak of. I just think it's super powerful. So I figured with that book in mind, you should be the person that kind of speaks on this subject. Mm. So yeah. Talk to me about the book. What made you say people need to hear this story, especially in the midst of just all of the things happening in culture? What made you say, I need to add my voice to this? Hmm. What a wonderful question. Well, I think I have spent the last 15 years of my life sharing my story in some format. And how this started for me is I actually was a master pretender. I mean, I was so good at putting on a mask and pretending and performing and moving through life, pushing my pain down and making sure it went somewhere that nobody else could see it. And that led to self-harm and dysfunctional relationships and an eating disorder and addiction and anxiety through the roof and some very bad choices. And for me, I also think there was a great deal of shame around my story, having been sexually assaulted. I also had an abortion. And so I dropped out of school. I moved across the country. Like I've just gone through a lot. And so I think for me to be able to begin to share my story for the first time was because I had such a desire for other people to understand that they are not alone. And I had a very deep desire for people to understand that we go through hard things in this life. And just like you hear the siren, somebody is going, going through a hard thing right now here in New York. But I think that that is a real experience that people need to know is that you are not alone and you're not alone in your pain and your suffering. That is part of the human experience and no one escapes that. And so for me, I wanted to come out of hiding. I wanted to break the silence on my story and my own pain. And the more that I did it, the more that I realized, man, everybody's going through something. Mm-hmm. And so it felt good to live 
life unfiltered. And I'm not talking about in, in a way that is rude communication or that is, you know, me just living my truth, even if it's at the expense of somebody else. But I'm talking about being honest about my life, being honest about who I am, being honest about my experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hopes that it would create space for others to say, this is who I am. And I'm going to live my life out loud. And I'm not going to be ashamed of the things that I've gone through, the mistakes that I've made. And I'm going to recognize that everybody makes mistakes and that everybody goes through things. And so for me, story has been a really powerful time and a, a very powerful way of me moving through life. And the last thing I'll say is like, you know, the book's title, Rise of the Truth Teller. I was raised in the Southeast in North Carolina. <laughs> and yeah. in the South, you are just taught to tell the truth. Like you're taught to be a truth teller. You're taught, you know, to be honest. But at the same time, we often mean that we are telling the truth about others. And so part of my journey is to tell the truth about myself and to be honest about who I am and to not shame and blame others or to talk about others, but to come to this place where it's like, I'm going to own my story and own my life and own my responsibility in the world and own the gifts that I've been given and own my place. And so that's really what this book starts out talking about. That's so incredible because I think obviously there are so many people right now in culture and there's a lot of finger pointing, but nevertheless, the result is the same where people feel silenced and people feel that if they were to share who they really are or what they've really been through, that it would be greeted with a lot of negativity or even lack of belief, which is Mm. something that I've seen in the lives of several people You know, what has been the response since coming out with this book? Have there been any highlights? Have there been like kind of moments where you were like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that where you doubted yourself? What have you been experiencing since the book's released? Mm. Well, the good news, the sweet thing about my journey with God is that I have been able to share my story for so long that Mm. I've developed sort of a thicker skin around it. So if people are offended that I talk about the issue of abortion or that people are offended that I'm talking about sexual assault or women being silenced or what women go through in the world and what it really means to, to live in this world and the levels of aggression, the levels of anxiety, that we're constantly surrounded by, like being able to speak to those things. Not everybody likes that, but for the most part, it's been a very positive response. One of my favorite stories is my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law and two of their friends went to purchase my book at a Barnes and Nobles in Texas where they live. And there was a woman carrying a big backpack in the bookstore and they happened to be standing right by my book and looking through the book and flipping through it, just excited that it's in a store. And the woman came up next to them and was like, tell me more about this book. Like, what is this? And, and they began to share with her like some of my personal story and what the book was about. And immediately the woman just started crying in the Barnes and Nobles because she wow. said, I'm a seeker. I've been seeking so hard for truth and I've been seeking for someone who gets me and gets my story. And this sounds exactly like the book that I was looking for. And, and so she ended up getting the book and starting to read it. And that was one of my favorite stories. And it just was a reminder to me again, that no matter where we go in the world, like the common language that we have, we have hope, we have love, but we also have pain and we have real experiences that we don't always know what to do with. And so for me, that was one of my favorite stories. But yeah, it's it's been a little bit all over the map, you know, but for the most part, the response has been very positive. I mean, when you have stories like that, that clearly shows that God's been working in and through uh, what you've put out. And I think that's something to celebrate. And, And I'm super grateful to hear that, Things have been going well. Like you said, things have been all over the place, I guess. But when you have stories like that, that makes it all worth it. At least in my mind, for sure. Do you feel being a pastor and you've made your truth known, you've 
told people what's happened in your past, the good, the bad, the ugly. How do you feel the church is doing in regards Mm. to this type of approach to things? You know, it's very interesting about the church, at least in my my context, the sort of Western evangelical experience. So I'm painting with a bit of a broad stroke with what I'm about to say, because this is it does, my experience doesn't represent the whole of the church. But what I have discovered is that people in the church and pastors and people in leadership really love a good story, right? They love the comeback stories. They love like, I used to be an addict. I used to have an eating disorder. I was raped. I had an abortion. And now look what God has done in my life. And we love that. Amen. And at the same time, if you begin to speak to the nuances of that, what it means to heal, what it looks like to have 16 years of recovery, what it looks like to go from that to being married, to having children, to parenting. And then you also begin to speak to the systemic structures that enable some of these things to happen. I find that that's where the church sometimes gets fearful because it means that we have to deal with our communal operations and how we do things. So instead of just celebrating the one story, if you begin speaking to systems or you begin to ask questions like, well, who's not in the room and why aren't they here? And what's, what's our makeup? And how are we going to live together in diversity? And are we really living together in diversity? Or do we just have diverse people in the room? Like when you begin to ask these types of questions or is the way that we respond to women in our church, is that, you know, enabling women to step into the leadership giftings that God has given them? And that's when I find the church feels frustrated with truth telling. And I'm not mad about that. I think that everybody has to go on a process with truth telling. But I think um, we are hesitant in our organizations to respond to the systemic structure needs (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the way that things might need to change to enable people to really heal and to enable us to walk in community and in unity in a way that honors God for real. Now, you just hit on something that I've never heard before, but we, we can't just move past that. So you just talked about, am I getting what you're saying? Asking the question, are we a diverse church or do we just have diverse people at our church? Is, right. that, is that what you mentioned? Can yes, you, that can is you it. expound on that a little bit more? That's interesting. Sure. You know, so many of my mentors talk to me about, I'm a white female pastor. And so for me, I have many mentors who are men and women of color who speak into my life and speak into my ministry and who teach me you know, all the things that I need to know in order to do what I'm talking about right now. But so often we can come in with a diverse church, but not actually truly be diverse in the way that we worship, in the way that we do community, in the people we quote on the platform, in the way that we do our worship, in the way that we relate to one another. Sometimes it can still be quite monotone. And a church can also be very diverse, but have a a strong group think where Yes, we are diverse people, but we have a very strong group think. And if you don't think like us, you got to get out of here. Um, And so I think true diversity is not assimilation. And true diversity really is giving position and power and privilege to people who are very diverse in thought and diverse in the way they look and diverse in the way that they, you know, move through the world, diverse in their experiences and economic brackets. Like I think the church has to journey towards that end because I think that's really what honors God. And I think the days of, you know, sort of this monotone tone one level leadership are ending yeah. because I do believe that the Lord is, is raising people up from all nations, all people, all tongues to be able to worship and honor him and have space to be who they are within the faith community. And we see it in and out of the church. So I know God is doing it, (laughs) but I think sometimes the church is just a little slow to adapt. And I get that because there's a lot at stake. You know, you'd have to move around resources and you'd have to change leadership structures. And as a pastor myself, I know how hard that is to do those things. So I don't fault the church for moving slowly, but it is time this time. 
I resonate a lot with what you just said because I had a very difficult experience entering the ministry. So, you know, you've mentioned that you're a white woman, I'm a black man. And I remember when I first went into ministry, I started a residency in a church in Georgia. And I loved it. I thought it was incredible people. But I was the only Black person on staff doing Mm. any type of ministry. It's really hard. Yeah, it was very difficult. It was me and it was one accountant on staff that was black, a black woman. And that was it to the point where I remember getting an email sent to me from a congregant in the church who said, you know, this, this is a very large church. It was on one of the list of fastest growing churches at one point in the past 10 years. But how is it that you can have such a large church and there's no diversity seen on the stage? Right. And his concern was like, you know, I have black children and, you know, it would make my world for them to want to do ministry. But why would I bring them to my church if all they see is white people on the stage? Come on. You know, the ironic thing about that whole story was he was white as well. He had mm. two black children, but he said, no, this is a priority for them. They can't right. live in a world or go to a church where that's what they see on stage. I want them to see what they could aspire to be. And you know what was so difficult was not only did I, I didn't have a strong answer for that, but truth be told, neither did the staff that was there. And right. um, that kind of really bothered me in a lot of ways. And you know, I was grateful again for my time there, but I made sure that when I attend the church and serve at the church that I'm currently at, that it was one that did prioritize that mm. the kingdom of God was something that was represented in our staff in addition to the diverse ways of worship and, and approaches to God that you can experience on a Sunday. Yes, um, that's powerful. Absolutely. It's necessary. My faith community that I came to like really walk with Jesus was in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I really loved that experience. Our executive pastor was a black female. One of our other executive pastors was a single Latin American young woman. I mean, like in her early twenties. And then we had married people on staff and all kinds of different races. Our pastoral pastor was Latin American man. And then over all of our recovery was a black man. And so it was just like a beautiful representation of what heaven looks like in the core leadership team. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that was always like, it will stand out forever and something I would want to work towards for life. Because I remember the rich experience of that and being deeply connected with others. And so when things start happening in our world, it's a different response. Like when you see police police brutality, it's like, well, I'm connected to people that this is directly affecting. So to me, this matters now, whereas maybe before it wouldn't have, but now I know how it's affecting people that I love and care about. And so I think for us, that's why diversity also matters is that because the world is crying out for hope and crying out for answers. And if we give them this sort of monotone response to everything, or we're judging so hard because we're not in relationship with anybody that these things affect, Mm. then I think that we have to really look at ourselves as a church and go, wait a minute, why do I believe what I believe? And God, is this really honoring you? Because is it really honoring others? And so that's why it's so important that we consider these things. You're so right. And you know something I I think you're hitting on too? I think one of the reasons why churches are so slow with stuff, because they confuse church tradition with actual biblical truth Mm. at times. Mm. And there needs to be a level of kind of, okay, 
why do we do this? Does the Bible speak on this? Because we might be operating out of something that God never actually ordained. And being able to decipher that and moving forward with the, we are gospel centered, we are Jesus first people. Right. That's going to be the thing that really brings about the change I think we really need to see. Yes. So let me ask you this then. Do you feel that the church is rightfully vocal about something? Like what in culture do you feel like, you know what, the church has definitely made their stance about this and they're making an impact for the better because of it? Yeah. You know what? I think the church is relentless about hope Mm. and very, very vocal about it. And that is right. That is a good thing to be never, ever failing in hope because we always have the light of Jesus ahead of us. You know, I think about John 1 where it talks about how darkness has never overpowered the light. And that is what the church is proclaiming. Like we have hope no matter what happens in this world, no matter who's going to war, no matter what crisis is happening, no matter how dark it gets in Christ, we have hope. And I think that's something the church is very rightfully vocal about. Another thing I would say that many churches are rightfully vocal about is rest, this idea of rest. Oh, yeah. Man, like, because this world is not peaceful. And, it is and hustle culture out here. Correct. It is. And we've just inherited this sort of like work, work, work till you die mentality. And it really is this old covenant, like Pharaoh is our master mentality mm-hmm. instead of inheriting, you know, Jesus, the savior who gives us rest, who is our peace, who is our Sabbath. And so I think um, rest is a really powerful thing that the church is rightfully vocal about. And to be clear for anybody listening, rest is not a nap. It's a lot deeper than that. Breathe <laughs> faster. Something that I like to say, though, is if Jesus took naps, and I agreed to follow Jesus all the days of my life, I'm going to take my naps in Jesus' name. You know what I mean? So I take them, but that is not the same as rest. You are so right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I just needed to clarify that. You set somebody free right there. It's good. You know what I mean? I felt <laughs> deliverance just now. I don't know if you felt it. Same. I felt it. <laughs> it's too good. It's too good. Do you feel, you know, I, you're so right. I think the church is one of the few places right now, especially in this political climate, especially mm-hmm. with just the constant outrage about somebody said this and somebody did that. The church seems to be the one consistent place that is saying, no, there is hope. And we don't put our hope in a politician. We don't put our hope in some type of policy. We put our hope in Jesus. We believe that he will be the person, you know, whether it's today or tomorrow, that will make all things new and right, which is so powerful. And that's something I think so many of us really need to cling to. But at the same time, I do want to know, do you feel like the church is also being silent about certain issues going on in the culture that they need to be vocal about? Yeah. You know, I have a nuanced response to this because I'm not sure I'm the one who should determine what the church is silent about. Mm, Um, You know, I think that every church is called to do what they do. And so everything else is sort of me judging what what churches should and shouldn't be doing. However, I do think it's really, really important for the church to not be quiet, you know, to not, it's not okay for the church to not have answers for people, you know, Um, that's not okay. I do think the church sometimes is still too silent on things like police brutality, which I already mentioned earlier. And that is really important that people are dying in this streets and we need to talk about it. We need to talk about how it's creating fear. We need to talk about how mothers and fathers are afraid for their children. We 
need to talk about what this is doing to our minds to watch this level of violence over and over and over again on social media. People who already know that it's happening because their communities have always experienced it. And then people who are just watching it happen, but not doing anything about it, not speaking up about it. Like we need to talk about these issues in the church. Mm-hmm. I would say the immigration crisis is huge here in America. And we need oh my gosh, as the church. Yeah. yeah. God has a lot to say about immigration. He has a lot to say about welcoming the stranger. He has a lot to say about how we are supposed to treat foreigners and forget what the government decides to do because we don't always get to control that, but we have a response about how to treat immigrants. The God has answers for us and the church should help people do that. I think also the church could is a little bit too quiet about the polarization of people that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And we have to be people who are willing to build bridges. And we have to be people who are willing to speak to the polarization and say, you know what, it's not all the way over on the right and it's not all the way over on the left. And Jesus has something for us right here in the middle. And we got to start connecting people. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it says in Second Corinthians 5. And that is our, our responsibility. He says we are ambassadors of Christ. He says that God is making his appeal to the world through our lives. And so mm-hmm. I think that we're too quiet about that. And then the the last thing I want to say is how much digital media is pastoring people. I oh, think the church shoot. is not okay. the church is not speaking to that. And mm-hmm. you know, people are being pastored by the news, you know, whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever mm-hmm. it is people enjoy. People are being pastored by Instagram and Facebook and whatever star is out there doing whatever it is that they're doing, a YouTuber, and especially young people. That is what's pastoring folks because that's where they're spending the bulk of their time and it is creating so in some ways beautiful innovation and excellent content and, uh, and in most ways a crisis of anxiety and loneliness and it also is informing our communal connection within the church mm-hmm. and we're not speaking to it and so i think that that is it's important for the church to not be silent about these things so there's a, there's a small handful of mine first off you just preached the whole sermon in answering one question i don't even know where to start from that i'm going to start with the i'm going to start with the last thing and maybe work my way back social media is pastoring mm-hmm. folks yes it i don't is. think i've ever heard somebody say that but yep. immediately i was like yep you're yep. definitely right about that are yep. we feeding into that though as church pastors are we kind of also becoming a part of the circus or do you think we're what's your interpretation of that like what do you see us doing yeah. I mean, I probably a little of both and, but I also am like, you know what? Digital media is not going away. Yeah. So for me, then how can we engage it in a way that is offering people hope, offering people life, but also not in a way that's, you know, doing things like just posting these random quips and thoughts. It's like, great, that preaches well, but it doesn't live well. And so we mm. need to figure out how are we light? How are we salt on the earth? How are we loving people? How are we participating in the mediums in a way that is helpful, but also making sure that we are resisting, you know, adding to the polarization or adding to the dualistic narratives that are really not helping people actually live their life. So true. Uh, but we don't have, we can't opt out. It's digital media isn't going anywhere. Yeah. So we have to figure out what are our healthy practices. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you just inspired a whole sermon for me to to write down now because you're right, it's not going anywhere, but I don't know how many people are creating solutions to the social media problem. You know, I've heard somebody mention that social media and just phone usage has become something where almost they should start teaching it in school, yes. like how to have a healthy lifestyle with social media because yes. people are ruining their lives, you know, mm-hmm. whether they know it or not, mm-hmm. because of how much they're consuming on social media. And then social media, obviously, it's supposed to just be like, hey, this is my life, this is my kids, dog, what have you. But it's become super consumeristic as yes. well. And 
I do wonder if there's a way, and I believe there is, where the church can be more of, hey, listen, obviously you're here to digest content, but let's contribute a way where people can find some level of fulfillment or peace. You ever seen like those churches mm. that do the, how can we pray for you? Like posts and stuff like yes, that. Yes, totally. I think, I think we've done a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so That's make fun the, of us if you want to, because it's real. No, not at all. But, I only bring that up because that's probably one of the only things that I can think of right now, maybe yeah. it will come to me later on, that is like, oh, this is actually doing more. You know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of like, how can we help you through yes. the vehicle of social media as opposed to, hey, come to our church on... Not that that's a bad thing. That's a totally. type of evangelism. But totally. again, going against the consumer narrative. Yes. So... You know, here's the question that I also want to know. Why do you think, like, yes, there's things that the church is quiet about, but why do you think they're silent? That's what I want to know. You know, something that really hurt me, you mentioned the police brutality and stuff like that. Again, I was at this church in Georgia, and this was during the I Can't Breathe and the many mm, other things that were happening. Gosh, tough time. It was very tell tough. Me they were silent. They were silent. They were silent. And then even some of the people that I kind of looked up to. And again, I want to be clear because I'm not saying that they were bad people, but I don't think that the way it was handled made me feel encouraged whatsoever in the midst of that time of my life. But I remember, you know, the I Can't Breathe story. And one of the pastors was basically saying, you know, I used to wrestle and when you do a chokehold and stuff like that and all of that, I was like, but, and that bothered me because he, he was justifying what happened. Correct. And I was also kind of like, well, I kind of feel like, first off, this was an illegal chokehold. Um, Completely. So, yeah. Nobody so should have died in a chokehold. Nobody, especially from a police officer. He was screaming for his life. I mean, yeah. it's like, oh God. It's very tragic. Yes. But then also, I think... And, you know, this podcast has permission to get messy. I think it was a sign of how powerful privilege can be Mm -hmm. because, and the thing is when I try, when people, a lot of people ask me, what is white privilege? And I tried to say, it's the same thing as male privilege. You know what I mean? It's basically because the majority of individuals are in the room or they believe that they have the power in the room, whether they acknowledge it or not, there are things that can be said and done and jest on, you know, whatever the case that would not be acceptable in an opposite way, you know? And this is why the Me Too movement was so powerful and still is along with church too. And we'll hint, you know, we'll touch on that in a little bit, but it was basically people saying, no, I'm finding my voice and I'm, and I'm standing up against you know, what's happening here. And I think again, to the point that I mentioned earlier, just because someone is privileged doesn't make them a bad person, but the cards are in their favor and there needs to be an acknowledgement that the cards are in their favor. And then also a challenge and accountability of what are you going to do if that's the case? Yes. So if that's the case, why do you feel that that was a very tangent way to get to the question I'm trying to get to. Why, why do you feel the church is quiet? What power, what play are they trying to make by being silent in your opinion? Well, I think that it probably varies from church to church, Mm -hmm. but I think sometimes the reason pastors are silent 
is because one, it just doesn't affect them or they see it on the news and it's like, oh, so sad that happened and they just mm-hmm. keep it moving. They don't even think to deal with that in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I think the other reason some people don't deal with it is because they're afraid to say the wrong thing. I think that can be true. I don't think it's, I think it's a cop out, but I think that can be a true feeling that many white pastors experience is that Mm. they feel afraid to say the wrong thing or they don't know what the Bible says about this. You know, like Mm. personally, I've had to do a deep dive on what does the Bible have to say about race and what resources are out there available for me to read? What can I understand about the gospel and race? Does Jesus have anything to say about this? You know, are there Mm. examples in the Bible about race? And yes, to all of those questions. But I think if you are not understanding how important this stuff is, then you're not going to speak up. The other thing is I think that a lot of pastors, unfortunately, are disconnected from their the people that they shepherd, whether intentionally or not. Call them out. And you can't really serve people you don't know. Mm. And you can't love people you don't know. And so I think if you really don't understand that within the faith context, if we just, we keep circling um, police brutality, but it's just, it's a real thing. I mean, we just like, look what just happened to Atiana Jefferson, you know, so it's like, it's, these are huge things that are happening in our community. So let's just circle that for a minute and hold space for that. And I think that if you don't recognize that there are diverse people within your church that are going to be deeply moved and deeply impacted. If you don't understand that the community that they're a part of is deeply impacted, then you won't have the courage and the boldness to speak to that. And I think pride gets in the way too, because you have to be willing to be wrong and you have to be willing to ask questions. You have to be willing Mm -hmm. to say, you know what? I don't know everything there is about this issue. Please, as a member of my community, I want to know you. I want to serve you. Can you tell me how this issue is affecting Mm. you? Can you tell me, help me understand what I don't understand. Help me see what I've been so privileged not to have to see. Like, help me understand where you are, who you are, and how I can serve your family. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are reasons that pastors don't always speak up. I don't think any of them should be excused mm-hmm. as reasons that are okay for the church to not speak up, but maybe that's just um, some reasons that make our behavior understandable and not acceptable, but still understandable. That's super powerful. I, I really agree with what you're saying. I think a lot of them are silent because they're unaware. And you know, that's kind of like I've heard somebody say this, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but in some sense, I believe it's true that the most difficult people to grow in Christ are the ones in ministry. Oh my gosh, totally. Yeah, because we're the ones that are constantly having to produce and give. And we actually many times need to be the ones that are sit that are sitting down and learning, you know, especially because I think And I've experienced this too. Like, I don't know if you guys do the small group or whatever version of it that you do, but I've experienced it where me and my wife will go into a small group and we want to be a part of it, but everyone's looking at me like I have the right answers all the time because I'm the pastor, you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, no, I'm not here to actually be the leader. I'm actually here to be a participant in this. And that's a really difficult place to be. And let's be honest, when it comes to ministry, if you're not careful, there is a narcissism and an ego that can really build and it can make it where it's very difficult to be the one that's teachable and to be the one that's humble. And it, it makes it easy for someone to kind of be the one that always has the right answers or the one that leads the group. So I think you're right. I think there's a big need for us, especially people in ministry, church leaders, Mm -hmm. to be the ones that are saying, what's going on? I need Mm -hmm. to learn. I need to hear what's happening in my congregation and not just be the one that's telling them how to live. Yes. Um, You know, 
It's powerful. And I think there's a reason that Jesus decided to wash disciples' feet, like mm. that he did that and that Peter in his pride was so, don't touch me, don't do that because this is not what leaders do. This is mm. not what a rabbi should be doing. This is not what the Savior, the Messiah should be doing. And he's saying like, hey, you go and do likewise. Like, you know, you're not better than mm. me. Go and serve the way that I have served. And so I think it's an important trait for us to cultivate as believers in Christ is humility, you know, to chase that thing. And every time you feel pride creeping up on you to allow others to speak into your life and, and have people who are close enough to you to be like, listen, you're getting a little too big for your britches here. Okay. Yeah. Like you yeah. calm down and you're mm-hmm. wrong. Like we have mm-hmm. to have people in our lives to say that. And to your point, sometimes it can be hard to find safe people who are willing to do that. Come on. Um, but we do actually have to have to surround ourselves with people who will. And we have to remember that our job is not to um, lead the people, it's to serve the people. That is actually what a shepherd does. And mm-hmm. in your serving, you produce leadership. Um, You're right. But the top priority is to come under, not to come above. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a really important thing for us to remember. But I agree with you. And I will say, I think it's, you know, I think it might be even harder for men in this structure. Oh, yeah. To, you know, because women haven't always had these positions of power and we don't always get to make those big decisions. And so I think that that would be even harder. Like I have compassion for the superiority that comes with male privilege and we all have it. We all have some type of superiority mm-hmm. um, and supremacy that we deal with. It's just our varying degrees of it based on our context and who we are in the world. But I do think superiority is a big one, you know, and Jesus was always speaking to it. <laughs> so I yeah. think it's, it's really important that we deal with that in us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you feel like pastors should have really nice sneakers and wear them on stage? Oh my gosh. You know, I don't really care, but I, (laughs) you know, I totally follow sneakers and preachers. I'm here for it. I love it. But I will say like, you know, I come from just a different world. It's like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, we served such a beautiful, rich faith community. That's been my background in ministry and working Mm -hmm. as an outreach pastor. It's just like, listen, I'm not going to roll up in the the neighborhoods that I've served, like in a Cadillac Escalade and a thousand dollar pair of shoes, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think we are sometimes selling people short. I don't care if you have an Escalade, by the way, good for you. That's awesome. I'm just making the point that like, you know, it's, we just have to be careful what we're selling people. Mm -hmm. And are we teaching them that if we are people of God, that it comes with all this stuff and that means blessing. And so is that why people are here or is it because actually, you know, it costs to follow the Lord and blessing is not an economic bracket. Blessing Mm -hmm. comes because we have the favor of the Lord. And so wherever you are and whatever you are, if you never move into this economic bracket, you are just as blessed as I am. Like do people Mm -hmm. have a full understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and that he's not put his blessing on somebody because of the things they have. And in the world we live in today, I'm not so sure. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people think the fruit of the spirit is things that we have. And it's like, no, it says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That Mm -hmm. is what the fruit of the spirit is. And we are to bear it no matter where we are. And so I just, I get concerned that we are selling people, you know, the same thing as the world where it's like, come follow God and look at all the things you get. Look at how he'll bless you. It's like, well, that just hasn't been my experience. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) you're absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. I'm preaching a message actually this Sunday talking about that exact thing. And basically, I want to come, (laughs) you know, we can switch. Let's have a, let's have a Sunday where we switch. You preach here. I'll preach in the city. Yeah. (laughs) Let's do it. Have you been to the Hudson Valley? No, I need to come. Come on, man. I'll fall foliage. (laughs) That joke is lit. You know what I mean? It is crazy. (laughs) Anyway, but no, seriously, you know, I'm speaking about basically how God is not, a commodity. He is not a part of your business plan. Come God on. is everything that yes. you need. 
And yes, if you get nice things, that is awesome. Scripture even says that nice stuff or wealth can be considered a blessing from God, but that does not mean that the lack of it is a blessing, is God is mad at you either. That is just something God has given you. And that is ultimately God wants to be the person that is giving you the joy, the peace, the things that you need that are internal and eternal because I have never bought a pair of sneakers that have ever given me the ability to forgive someone for my past. I've never (laughs) bought a car that helped heal my marriage. None of that has happened. Only Jesus did that, you know, and that's a free gift. I'll say this also. I have a pair of Yeezys that are a gift and I refuse to wear them on stage just because I just do not want, first off, I'm not trying to get on that page. In no way, shape, or form do I consider that a form of flattery. Totally. I'm not, I don't want to be in the story. I don't want to be, no, that is not, that's not what I want. But ultimately, I don't want to be a distraction. The last thing I need is to preach a message about how Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for your sins and how you need him so you can have eternal life. And people are like, how much those shoes cost though? That's that's, right. That's, I don't need that. You know what I mean? No, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So when do you feel like the church should be quiet about an issue? Do you ever feel that way? Is there ever an opportunity when we should take advantage of that? You know, there's the only place I can really think of that that is necessary for the church to just be quiet is when people are out there with like protest signs and Mm. when there's name calling, it's like, stop calling people names. Like, where is that the gospel of love? When do you ever see Jesus do that? When do you ever see God do that? It's just, well, except when Jesus was telling the Pharisees that they're whitewashed tombs, but basically he would be talking to the people holding the signs. It's like, stop it. There's no love in it. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's the time where it's like, just, just stop doing that. And in general, while again, and I don't feel like I'm the one to say what the church should speak about or not speak about, but I do wish that the church was more nuanced in its responses to things. So instead of being like, this is what I'm against and this is what I'm for, I feel like the church should be more nuanced where it's like, actually, there is a context from which people make decisions. Mm-hmm. And so there is a reason that people do what they do. There is a reason why they end up in the places that they end up. And there's sort of this myth of choice that my dear friend Harmony Desgrillo talks about. And some people actually don't have choices. They have a feeling over them that enables them to only make certain choices because of where they come from and what they've been through and how they have had to survive in this world. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the church leaves enough nuance for people. So I wish that we would just stop talking at folks about what they should and shouldn't be doing and giving them again, this dualistic narrative that is sounds good on social or sounds good in a message, but it doesn't live well. Like your life is not that polarized. Your life is not that you know, one way or the other way. Life is mm. so much more nuanced and we need more of that conversation in the church. You know what's so ironic too is pretty much every character in the Bible with the exception of Jesus is so nuanced. Totally. Like, oh my gosh. Like I can't think of, we did a series on Hebrews 11. Mm-hmm. All, every one of those jokers that are known for their faith had something that was kind of like, well, that was really shady. I'm pretty yes. sure. You know what I mean? This is kind yes. of like, wait, So why can't we, and I get it, when you're preaching on a Sunday or you're teaching something, you almost want to be very clear from the perspective of if you give someone an inch, they'll take a mile sometimes, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you have to be real about it. To your point, it's just like there's, there's complications here. There's things that are happening here. You know, you shouldn't just preach how we should all be like David because David you know, allegedly he did some, consensual rape. You know what I mean? And and he was wrecked. 
and he, and he was solid, you know what I mean? During his own daughter's rape, you know what I mean? It's yes, kind of like, correct. we don't need to be like David. We need to be like Jesus, but there are elements of Christ that can be seen in the life of David. Yep. You know what I mean? There's a yes. difference in how you tell that story. Yes. Come on. Um, and uh, man, I think so many times we miss that because we just want the message to sound better, but it's And we want to clean it up. I yeah. think that that's how I actually learned, you know, how to, how to sort through my pain is because I had only really heard, and I write about this in my book, but I had only really heard the victory narratives, like Mm -hmm. Moses parted the Red Sea and Esther saved the people. And, you know, you hear these outcomes of what Jonah did and all these people repented. And then look at Paul, he had this conversion and blah, blah, blah. And when I really started reading my Bible, I was Mm -hmm. like, God, there is not a life in here that I would want. There mm. is not a life in this Bible that I would want. I do not want to have to be in a harem where the king may or may not pick me for a year and, and deal with all this stuff that's happening just so that I can save the people. I don't want this life. You know, mm. I don't want to be Moses. I don't want to be a baby who has to be put in a basket. So in the hopes that maybe I would live, I don't want to be Paul who has this <laughs> radical conversion where everybody hates him for years. You know, like I just think about what these people really had to go through. And I think it is irresponsible of us as people of God to clean up these narratives in such a way that people just feel like faith is formulaic because it is Mm. not. And there is never a time that Jesus heals anybody the same way twice, which Mm -hmm. speaks to the individual love of God and to the process that every person has to go on. And I know that it's messier to tell the whole truth. I know it's messier to think about Bathsheba as someone who could not say no to a king and most likely was raped. I know it's difficult to think about it like that, but that's the, the, the cold hard facts are that. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to teach people the whole Bible, the whole gospel. We interpret scripture with scripture. And so it's important that people understand that this is not, you know, two plus two equals four, and that will be our life. It's like, this is not real faith. That's yeah. you controlling outcomes, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not what faith is. Oh my gosh. This is such a great conversation. And I love what you're saying. All right. So I want to respect your time. Like I said, I want to be, so I'm only going to ask you two questions and I mean it. This time. Two questions. Okay. <laughs> two questions. You, I know you got a job and kids and everything. So you talk about it in the book and for all those listening, Rise of the Truth Teller, Ashley Abercrombie, I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite books of the year. And that's not because she's on the podcast and I need to sound good. I'm telling you from the first page, I was hooked because Mm. it it was excellent. So Ashley, again, well done. Thank you. Talk about maybe it was in the book. Maybe it wasn't. Where do you feel you've been too quiet in your own past or in your ministry and how did you change? What, what did it take mm. to change for all of those listening that need to hear this? So it doesn't just sound like we're throwing stones. No, we're, we're being honest about our own yes. stuff too. Yes. You know, the power of truth telling for me really is telling the truth in real time. Mm-hmm. So I could be very tempted with the story I have that I've already shared with you guys today on the podcast, but I could be very tempted to just keep telling that story. But in order for me to remain a truth teller and in order for me to do what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, and not be too quiet in, in my ministry or in my life is that I have to practice truth telling right now. 
And so I have Mm. to be honest about what are my fears happening right now? What are the things that I feel tempted by? Where are the real areas where I could go off the rails? You know, my husband and I, who both have recovery backgrounds, we both say that we're always one decision away from stupid. Mm. (laughs) And it's not because we live our lives in fear, but it's because we are always, we always want to be humble before God and remember that we are not very far from doing something that could really take our life on a trajectory we are not hoping it will go on. Mm -hmm. And so for us, I think real truth telling all the time, you know, having a close circle of friends and to answer your question there, like, what can we do? Have a close circle of friends. If you don't have that yet, man, therapy is beautiful. Therapy is beautiful. Recovery groups are beautiful. You know, get yourself into some safe spaces where you can actually share the real truth and where people are not holding you to a standard of who you should be, but Mm -hmm. who you really are, where you don't have to deal in ideals, but you can deal with the real, I think is a really important thing. I value integrity over image always. Um, And so even if it costs me my reputation, if it costs me relationships, if it costs me whatever, I'm going to value my integrity over my image because that keeps me walking in the way of Jesus. And so that's really important. Um, That's so good. Yeah. That is so good. Who in ministry is inspiring you regarding this? Like who Mm. are you looking up to that Mm -hmm. says, you know what? I want to continue to strive to be a truth teller. And this person is motivating me to do that. Yes. There's a couple. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, so my, my closest friendship circle, for sure. There's like five women in my life that, I, that are just my go-to people. And they, they are inspiring me. I would say one of my dear friends, Harmony Grillo. she is one of the best truth tellers I know. Um, mm-hmm. She runs a beautiful organization that reaches out to women in the sex industry called Treasures. And, and she's a powerful person. My dear friend, Tiffany Bloom, mm-hmm. we have a podcast together called Why Though? And we get on the phone every week and we share our highs and lows and what's going on with us. And she inspires me to stay honest. And then from a distance, Lisa Sharon Harper, who wrote the book, The Very Good Gospel. She's an activist. She loves Jesus and is a powerful truth teller. And she is relentless about things of justice. And um, she encourages me not to be silent when I want to be. She encourages me to be faithful in the spaces that I'm in when I want to run from them. Danielle Strickland is another one who encourages me to speak up. She's a champion of women's voices. She believes in women preaching and doing their thing. And then just the final one I want to say who's been inspiring me recently is um, a man named Andre Henry. And he is speaking up about, you know, issues of race mm-hmm. and racial healing. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, he holds the tension of wanting the church to be what it could be mm-hmm. <laughs> and dealing with it as it is. And yeah. I appreciate that tension. So those are, those are mine right now. <laughs> I've been following Andre since the relevant, like before he, yeah. before he came out with the relevant, you know, what was happening behind the scenes when he was just yes. a part of the podcast. Yes. Yeah. I was like, yo, this is my guy. And then he yes. just randomly disappeared. I was like, where'd he go? And now I know <laughs> where he yes. went, but a, incredible guy and yes. all very incredible people that you mentioned as well. Ashley, thank you so much for being a part of this. Where can people find you? If they want more of Ashley Abercrombie, where do they go? Yes. Well, first I want to say it's such an honor to be on this podcast with you. It's, it's, I love the work that you're doing. I love how you minister. I'm so thankful for you. And if you guys want to catch up with me or connect with me, I have a website, ashabercrombie.org, and you can check out content, read my version devotionals, check out my book trailer. Um, there's all kinds of stuff on there for you. And then I'm on Instagram at ashabercrombie and Twitter. And then also over on Facebook at Ash Abercrombie NYC. And I would love to connect with you guys. It would be my, my joy to do that. Wonderful.
Well, there you have it, guys. Ashley Abercrombie, incredible woman of God, Rise of the Truth Teller out now. Go ahead and get it. Ashley, thank you again. Thank you. And there you have it. My conversation with Ashley Abercrombie. Definitely check out all of the things that Ashley has to offer, especially her book, Rise with the Truth Teller. I promise you won't regret it. And also, again, I want to give a big shout out to Ambo TV, which brings inspirational live sermons from the most captivating next generation Christian pastors, along with in-studio discussion to a broad multi-platform audience. I have been a guest on Ambo TV, and so has Ashley Abercrombie. I hope you guys definitely take the time to check it out. Until next time, I'll see you this is the Humble and Honest Podcast.